From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. It's the holiday season, and with the new year coming up, everyone's reflecting on the highlights from their past year. Here at WRKF and WWNO, we wanted to do the same thing by revisiting some of our favorite stories and giving you a behind-the-scenes look at how they came together. For more, we're joined by Louisiana Considered's Alana Schreiber. Thanks for being here, Alana. Thanks for having me, Karen. So, Alana, what are some of the stories from the past year that really stick out to you? One of my favorites would have to be the interview that you did about a funeral home in Amit and how the discovery of some old funeral programs gave people in the Black community this connection to their past that they didn't have before. Yes, Richardson Funeral Home in Amit. It's Black-owned, been in the same family more than 50 years. It's one of my favorites as well. I mean, what a find there. This families are cleaning out to move to a new location, and they discover file after file of funeral programs and obituaries going back half a century. Some of these people were born in the in the 1800s, and you know, back then, uh, black obituaries were rarely published by the newspapers. A funeral home program contains a wealth of information, a wealth of history, and it's written as a tribute that's dotted with stories about a person's life. Wow. Well, you spoke with several people for the interview. What were some of the main things you learned? Well, I think primarily the, the history and significance of the funeral program in the black community. It was a way, as I mentioned earlier, to publicly honor someone who died when you couldn't do it through a newspaper. And I also learned that because these programs are being archived, they'll be available and an invaluable asset for people working on their family tree. Wow. I also understand that the story was even a little bit personal for you. Can you tell me about that? Well, my mom was born and raised in Kentwood, Louisiana. That's near Amit. I have lots of relatives there. And just in, in talking after the interview, I jokingly told Dr. Harrell, my mom warned me not to date anyone from Amit because we're all probably related. When I told her my mom's maiden name is Broomfield, she let me know that there were funeral programs that were they were archiving of Broomfield. So who knows what history I will be able to unlock. Thanks so much for sharing all of this insight, Karen. So many of the stories we do have these really interesting sub-stories behind them that are so often really personal for the reporter. Absolutely. And on that note, I think it's time we give this piece a second listen. One of the owners of Richardson Funeral Home, Dr. Valerie Richardson and Dr. Antoinette Harrell join us now. Thank you both for coming on. Thank you for having us as a guest on your show. Dr. Richardson, I feel like we should start with the history of the funeral home. This has been in your family for how long and what has it meant to the community? Thank you again for having us on this morning. It has been in the community since 1959. So my grandfather, Alex uh, Richardson Sr., uh, as well as his wife, Melissa Richardson, started the funeral home uh, back then. And so since then, we have had three generations. Of course, we are the third um, to continue on with the funeral home business. And so it's really been an inspiration in the community. Um, we love Amy, Louisiana, Tangible Hope Parish. And so um, we try to be a light in that community. Can you talk about the... Uh, what it's meant to the community in terms of, you know, it's Black-owned and, and and going back that many years, this is beginning at a time of racial segregation. It was. And my grandfather, he started it years ago with uh, 
uh, $5,000 is from what I'm hearing. And so, you know, getting, um, and so it was, he was, he was trained by others in the past, you know, he was working for other funeral homes. And so he was, he was truly a pioneer back in his day. And, um, and he chose to step out and, um, and to start his own funeral home. And so again, it has been a rich legacy in the community, um, Richardson Funeral Home, and we have expanded and are still expanding um, his legacy. And it's very important to us as the third generation to continue um, the legacy of Richardson Funeral Home because it is black owned and we wanna keep it that way um, so that we can continue to contribute to preserving that history. Dr. Harrell, uh, going again to the, the point that this was a black owned business at a time when um, African-Americans, they weren't, they weren't uh, able to have information about their loved ones presented, say, in an obituary in a newspaper. This is 50 years of, of people memorializing their loved ones in a funeral program. What kind of information um, is found in these programs? Well, because we're talking about a period during segregation when they first started, African-Americans was not allowed to post it information about their deceased loved one in the newspaper. But they wanted to really have something to say about that person. So they started creating these funeral programs and giving them out at the funeral of that person. And in that, you will find school information, educational information, uh, occupational information, what if they was in the military, family connections. It's just so much. And the most important thing that I find is something about that person's life. What did they do? What type of legacy did they leave? We learn more about people sometime in their debt than we do in their living. Dr. Richardson, now your family came across this, been collected and held on to for, for more than 50 years. When did you realize the value of, of what you'd, you'd come across? You know, it's something about divine interruptions. And so and I say that to say, you know, being at work one day, you know, one of our employees who is now deceased, um, who recently passed away, Joanne Frazier, who's also a family member and also Eddie Brazil. Um, they were sitting around at the funeral home and just talking. And Eddie just loved to collect funeral programs. And so he would keep them all in this folder. We would have them everywhere. And every time they go to a funeral, uh, because everyone everyone was uh, related to it. So he loved to see what those relationships were. So he cherished these funeral programs. So we would keep them all. And, uh, and so one day we're sitting around talking and saying, what can we do with these? It, it has to, it's a lot of value here, you know, a lot of wealth, a wealth of information. So what can we use these for? And so at that point, that is when Joanne Frazier uh, mentioned it to my brother Earl Richardson and um, they decided to uh, reach out to Dr. Harrell, um, who is again, also our cousin. And so, uh, and so and we all got together. And so um, this is the product of that conversation. Let's pick it up from there, Dr. Harrell. Now, you are related to the Richardsons. You knew they had a funeral home. When did it hit you, the historical value of what they found in, in, this, in these programs? Well, myself and my colleagues, which is genealogists, we always talk about the importance of funeral uh, homes preserving those records. So when my late cousin, Joanne Frazier, called me and she said, look, we have boxes and boxes of funeral programs. Would you like them? I said, of course I would like them. And so the next day I went out to pick up boxes. Earl came to the car with boxes. I bought them home. I looked through all of them and I started processing them to be able to be preserved at uh, the Center for 
Louisiana Saudi Studies. We're speaking with historian, genealogist, Dr. Antoinette Harrell, and Richardson funeral home owner, Dr. Valerie Richardson. Dr. Harrell, what are some examples? Can you give us an example or two of um, some information that was revealed from the programs, one of the programs that were found that we might not have otherwise known? I would not have known about the Amit Colored School uh, in Amit, Louisiana, if it wasn't for Miss Janie Bell Williams' funeral program. I would not have known that. I would not have known that Miss um, Shirley Lee Cross Temper served and was taught by George Washington Carver. Uh-huh. I would not have known that if it wasn't for that funeral program. So there's a lot of information that I learned about the people in the Tangible Hope, St. Helena, the Florida parishes, should I say. Uh, this rich history, I'm saying, wait a minute, I didn't know this. I didn't know that this was the first person, Mr. Dyson was the first African-American to be hired as a police officer, the chief of police. See, I wouldn't have known that. These are programs going back 50 years. Dr. Richardson, how many funeral programs were there and, and how many years do they go back? Um, it's it's over 1,200 if, and we're adding. 1,800. It's over 1,800. 1,800 now. So we've recently <laughs> given her more. That's so right. she, she's keeping account. Wow. So, um, but yes, but it's 1,900, early 1,900s. You know, is is the what I can from what I can remember, Doctor Harrell. When was the decision made to combine these into a collection that's now open to the public? Um, when I contact uh, Doctor Hyde at Southeastern to discuss the collection, I really didn't want it to go into my collection because I didn't want it to get lost. So after we discussed it with uh, Doctor Samuel Hyde at Southeastern, he said, "Oh, sure, we can." just uh, have a collection just for Richardson's funeral home funeral programs. And I was very happy because that would have made it the fourth African-American collection at the Center for Southeast Louisiana Studies. And I'm proud to say that we have preserved preserved over 1,800 uh, funeral programs. Uh, And how can one access? Well, if they go to the search engine and search in Louisiana's uh, Center for Saudi Studies and type in Richardson's Funeral Home, it will come up. The index will come up. It'll tell you in every box the person's name and the year that they died. And when I gave it to them, I give it to them in an order that they can get it up online real quick. Now, if they go to the East Baton Rouge Parish Library, they can actually see the see the funeral program. There's 582, so they can see the physical program. They can make copies of it. Now, Dr. Richardson, do you have a, a, a favorite story or do you have a, a program that sticks out in your mind well, we have my, actually, and it's still family-related story of my brother. Uh, his father recently passed away, and his grandfather, Herbert Lee, in which Nett can speak upon, you know, he was also a part of the civil rights movement um, back in Mississippi. And so um, I think that's one of the stories that really, really stands out um, for me personally. Um, and just him being so closely, knowing that I'm closely related to someone who was a part of their rich, you know, uh, history in the past of, you know, the civil rights movement. So uh, I think that's the most, one of the most personal ones for me. I'll ask you both uh, as we wrap up, how it feels to, to be a caretaker of history. It's a wonderful feeling because I feel that uh, I owe it to my ancestors. I owe it to the ones that didn't have the privilege that I have. And I do not want to take my privilege 
likely. And to be working with my family is just another beautiful relationship. It's a beautiful bonding relationship as we preserve history together. And they are the first funeral home in Louisiana to have done so. But I am meeting with other funeral homes next week to uh, inspire them and to talk with them and consult with them about preserving their collections in other areas in Louisiana and Mississippi. And you, Dr. Richardson. Well, funeral programs for me, I, I really, really appreciate and respect the his, historical component of it. But also I look at to the younger generation that's coming up today and how, you know, we don't, families don't spend enough time sitting down at the table talking to their children about, you know, who their grandparents was, great grandparents and, you know, all this information. So I think it's also important to preserve that history for the younger generation you know, to allow them to have a, a mechanism and a mode to be able to go back and say, let me learn about, you know, Mama Maybelline, you know, whatever. I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I don't know much about her. I don't know where she was from. I don't know, you know, all these many different things. And I think it's so important for the young people today to know where they came from and about their rich history and legacy, especially being that now in today's society, you know, it's it's a discussion about taking history, black history out of school. And so we have to have some mode and some component, you know, to be able to go back and look at and to be able to preserve that history. One of the owners of Richardson Funeral Home in Amet, Dr. Valerie Richardson and historian genealogist, Dr. Antoinette Harrell. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Back in October, the new docuseries Making Black America Through the Grapevine premiered on PBS. Hosted by renowned scholar Dr. Henry Louis Gates and directed by Stacey Holman and Sheila Harris, the four-part series examines the Black experience over the past 250 years, diving into everything from post-emancipation Black schools to the social media phenomenon of Black Twitter. Upon its release, one of Making Black America's director, Stacey Holman, joined us with more information. Today, we give that conversation a second listen. You know, this is an incredibly ambitious project. You're really looking at everything from post-antebellum years all the way up to today. So where'd you get the idea? And, and when you came on as a director, how did you figure out how to condense over 250 years of history into a four-part series? Well, it started with actually Professor Gates. And he just was really reading about um, fraternal orders. And the fact that the Prince Hall Mason is the first order, um, 1775, and he was just really intrigued by these benevolent societies during this time in American history where, you know, you just hear it's just about slavery. But no, we were we were doing a lot more than, you know, tilling fields um, in this country. And from there, he brought myself and Shayla Harris. We'd work with him on the Black church. And he's like, I want to talk about these networks and these associations that really happen behind the color line, you know, in the midst of slavery, in the midst of Jim Crow, in the midst of today, because um, a story like this hasn't really been told. Now, to tell it was very daunting. Um, I mean, there's a lot of incredible associations that um, really helped form and shape Black America. And, you know, we started at the beginning, the Prince Hall Masons, and from there identified 
key moments um, in history where these associations really helped Black people just live outside of just this the tension that existed in the white gaze. I mean, you, you mentioned um, Mr. Gates and, and him being kind of the, the start of all this. He, he's more than the host and, and by far not the only big name to make an appearance in the film. Who are some of the other contributing guests? And talk some about how the conversations kind of get everything going into the history of, of, of what each episode is about. Yeah, we had, I mean, outside of we had some incredible historians that sat with us from Eddie Glau to Brittany Cooper to Tiffany Gill. Um, and then we had the scenes where Skip is sitting in the room with some friends um, from Boston and slash Martha's Vineyard. We have Andre Holland. We have the poet laureate from Boston. Um, we also have Bad Bye Freddy. Uh, people remember, you know, yo MTV raps. <laughs> um, you know, I think the important thing of having this conversation with these people in the room, typically with Skip, was to really just kind of create the space of what people were talking about, what we were having, or the conversations that we do have um, today, whether it's a barbershop, whether it's a quote unquote literary society, um, or even if it's like a welcome table in Weeksville, which is the oldest town, um, Black town uh, in the New York area. I was looking at a, an interview with your co-director, Shayla Harris, and, and she talked about how often the African-American story is told a bit narrow, you know, narrowly through, through a lens of resistance. And uh, the approach here that you all have taken is to show a fuller picture, to showcase community, humanity, black joy, black love. Um, so, so how is the film's approach different from, from other documentaries that focus more exclusively on civil rights? It's very different because I think we we hear about the struggle so much, but we don't hear what's happening outside of the struggle. Uh, we don't really hear the full story that, you know, we had to live. You know, we had to let our hair down. You know, how do we release that tension? How do we just separate our day from, you know, our, our home experience, from, you know, our that community experience that we have? So it's different because we haven't really seen a film that focuses on the joy that focuses on, you know, the Nadir was a horrible period. However, you have just this incredible black business that's happening during this time. These Madam C.J. Walker, um, Annie Malone, even during the Great Depression, you have black people having rent parties. So, you know, we're being innovative in these moments. And there's always a response to the struggle. And the response is not necessarily always pushing against the struggle. The response is like community. It's gathering, it's sharing, just encouraging each other. It's a look behind the veil that's not seen very often. You, you know, we exactly. do see the civil rights. We do see the struggle, but not often in this period, what was happening beyond that struggle. We are speaking with uh, director Stacey Holman about her latest project, Making Black America. Stacey, I noticed a lot of archival footage really enriches this this project. How did you get your hands on it? And, and what do you think that, that, that this project footage added to the film? You know, one thing I think just doing several history documentaries is just the agency that Black people didn't have in terms of just our image. And that was one thing that we really wanted to find is just the, the earliest images, earliest footage. But, you know, anytime that we were able to find a Black person that filmed a Black event, a Black, you know, community was just a gem. And I think it just spoke to that, you know, our, the images that might've been taken 
and shown in newspapers, there was more to that story. There's another story behind the story. There's a whole life behind that story or behind that image. Now, you have a, a very impressive resume of films. I want to pivot just quickly to a, a documentary that you, you produced a few years ago. Uh, Tell Them We Are Rising, the story of black colleges and universities. Now, this film explores the pivotal role that HBCUs have played in America. And, and you yourself, I know, attended an HBCU, Dillard University, here in Louisiana, in New Orleans. Yes. Can, yes. can you tell me a bit about this film and perhaps the, the similar journey uh, of trying to tell a story that's often overlooked or that hasn't been well documented? Um, Stanley Nelson is the director of uh, that film. And it's similar to how Skip kind of started. I, I go between Professor Gates and Skip um, kind of started this idea of making Black America. I know Stanley and his wife, Marcia, were talking with some friends and they were like, you know, is there ever a story on HBCUs? And there really, there wasn't. I mean, there's stories on Booker T, there's stories on maybe the Divine Nine, there's stories on, you know, Thurgood Marshall, W. Du Bois, but there wasn't a just collectively a story that just tells the journey of just, and the importance and the relevance of, of HBCUs. Um, similar to this story, you know, it was, you know, hundreds of years of history collapsing to like, 90, you know, 90 minutes. And, you know, I think as storytellers, what we do is we try to find the connective dots, you know, what is going to inform the next scene, what's going to inform the next scene, what's going to inform the next moment. Um, you know, one of the challenges of that film too, is that not a lot of HBCUs have the resources to preserve their archive. So a lot of schools had some incredible, incredible moments in history, but due to lack of funding for maintaining that archive was unavailable to us. Um, but starting from the beginning that, you know, education was a gem, education was gold for us, and that these institutions served the purpose for free and formerly enslaved. And those institutions still say, you know, serve just a greater uh, importance today than they did almost over 100 years ago. Now, now, moving back to, to Making Black America, I know this is a film uh, that was made for a wide audience. And, and of course, the film is, is largely for African-American people who haven't always had the opportunity to see these stories being told. But, but it's also for non-Black people to learn about what it means to be Black in America. How do you balance that? Um, d does wanting this film to be seen by a wide audience inform the narrative at all? You know, sometimes it does. Like one question people uh, we've been asked is, are you, are you afraid you're going to tell some of our secrets? You know, <laughs> so I mean, I think, you know, I think there's like a wink and nod in there that a lot of us will get um, and some will overlook. Um, and I think it is, I mean, it, it is a balance. You know, what do we say? What do we don't say? Um, I think the important thing in telling it to a wider audience is to say that there's always more to our story, um, to say that we are the fabric of this country. I mean, this country would not be what it is if it were not for the black and brown um, faces that walked the grounds of this, this, this nation. Um, so that is always kind of a general thesis of just a reminder of that we have been here, we are here, we are a part of this narrative. Director Stacey Holman, her latest project, Making Black America Through the Grapevine. You can watch the series on pbs.org. Stacey, thanks again for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Thanks to our guest, one of the owners of Richardson Funeral Home, Valerie Richardson. 
historian and genealogist Dr. Antoinette Harrell, and director Stacy Holman. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our digital editor is Caitlin Omholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman, Thomas Walsh, and Aubrey Procell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Historic New Orleans Collection.